Secrets to Real Estate Investing, Episode 7. Welcome to the Secrets to Real Estate Investing podcast by House Flip Masters, where you will learn powerful strategies from top experts in real estate investing, and you will find valuable information to take your investments to the next level. Now, here's your host and expert real estate investor, Holly McCann. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Secrets to Real Estate Investing by House Flip Masters. We have an attorney with us today who's going to help and share and show us how to take problems, turn them into great opportunities that we can benefit from as real estate investors. So a big welcome to Rafi Bugorgian. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. Pleasure to be with you. We're so glad to have you. So before we dive into some of the questions we have, give us a little bit of background about how you came about to be where you're at, kind of your life path and how you ended up where you are. Certainly. Well, I, um, I'm a real estate attorney. Uh, we only work on cases which involve real property in one way or another. Uh, we are licensed to practice in state and federal court. Uh, and we also practice in uh, in the probate arena, which comes up fairly often when we have real estate involved in families. Uh, real estate law found me. Uh, when I first graduated from law school and I started work, uh, my contacts were with realtors and colleagues who had contacts with realtors, and um, realtors came to us with cases for themselves or for their clients, and I guess we did a pretty good job. And uh, one realtor told another, and before I knew it, I was handling real estate matters. I learned the area, the law, and became a real estate attorney. Excellent. So it just was your path that was kind of developed for you. And yes, so it kind of found me. So what city and state are you in? We're located in downtown Glendale, about 15 minutes north of downtown LA. Okay. Uh, I also live in, I live and work in Glendale, so uh, I'm very lucky. I used to have a long commute and then I decided to pair it back and uh, it's been a great thing since 2009. Awesome. And just for our listeners, which we do have nationwide for their benefit, the law is different in every state, correct? It is, absolutely. We so, practice in California. Right. So you'll be speaking specifically to California law today, but these same challenges and opportunities are in probably every state of our nation, and people can probably still take advantage of these opportunities, but just learn how to work with it within their own state laws, right? Absolutely. Some things are I would like to discuss with your listeners today are just common things which I find come up again and again and again and come across my desk uh, time and time again, common areas which seem to, uh, which would apply in any state if you were investing or working in the real estate arena. Fantastic. Well, let's dive into our first opportunity. So for instance, if an owner purchases a property from a seller who knowingly fails to disclose defects and conditions, what is the opportunity with this situation for either a buyer or a seller? Well, I, one, of the, uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings about purchases of property in California is that everyone believes that a California, a sale of real estate in California is an as-is deal. And to, to a large extent it is, but there's an overarching duty that a seller has to disclose what the law defines as any condition which seller knew or should have known of 
which materially affects the value of the property. What does that mean in common English? It means if you think, if you put yourself, if you're a seller and you put yourself in the buyer's, in the buyer's shoes and you say to yourself, is this something that the buyer would want to know about? Would it affect what they would probably bid on the property? Yes or no? If it's a yes, then it's something which materially affects the value of the property, and it should be disclosed. Um, my advice to, 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 to any seller is disclose, 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 because it's things that you knew or should have known of, um, and that's fairly broad. It, can be, it, it may broaden or narrow depending on if you lived in the property, if it was your home, the roof over your head for many years, or if you were just a flipper who's only owned the property for a few months. These are going to be different standards, but there's still the overarching duty to disclose. And um, th there are several ways that uh, that I think you can be safe. You can you can protect yourself as a seller and as a buyer in dealing with this duty to disclose. Unfortunately, we see case upon case upon case where this gray area of what should and shouldn't be disclosed becomes a, a problem and ends up in litigation. Um, my hope is that. Folks can avoid that by over-disclosing if they're a seller and if they're a buyer to uh, do as much diligence as they possibly can, more than what I think the typical buyer is guided to do. Okay, so what do you mean by buyers to do more due diligence? How would they do such okay. study or research? For buyers, one of the areas that come up again and again and again are boundary lines. Um, mm. I've heard the statistic that here in LA County, and I'm inclined to believe this statistic, some 40 odd percent of our fences and divide, divisions between adjacent properties do not sit squarely on the property line. So you could buy a piece of property that you then end up, is, end up finding is actually smaller than you thought. Or, is, or you could be the seller who sells it and finds out later that the, the buyer has, takes an issue with the, the boundary lines. Yes, technically, your title insurance may cover it. They may. They may not. Um, it's better to, be, better to be safe than sorry. Uh, you can hire a surveyor to do a plot line survey, which I think is worth every dime. Um, that way you'll know exactly where you stand. And it'll also potentially save problems with adjoining landowners, with, with neighbors, especially if you plan to live in the property um, these are your neighbors. Absolutely. So is there a certain um, year that we look for when, say, we're just looking at homes and we're talking about residential real estate, when you talk about boundary lines being off, we're, I'm assuming there are more off on older properties than something built in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Is that right? Or do you see this error across the full range of years built? Um, I think there's a certain wisdom to what you say. I think that the older a property gets and the more, the more, the more often it's changed hands, the more often the, the more chances that there could be work done, which could shift, uh, could shift dividers between properties. They could expand and decide they want to push the wall back six inches or 12 inches or, or more. Um, so I think you're right. I think the older uh, a property gets, the, likelihood, the higher the likelihood of something having changed could be but uh, we see it happen with uh, new developments too because new developments are all interconnected if a developer develops seven adjacent plots at one time if they get first one wrong then it usually creates a chain reaction which which uh, affects the, the remaining six or more 
somebody just be careful with your plot lines. I think it's, it's, it's an area that uh, deserves the extra, little bit of extra expense and diligence um, uh, to, to look into. Another area which, which connects to something you brought up, which I think um, is a little bit old fashioned, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think as a buyer, it's always good to go down to the county recorder and do some old fashioned research if you can. Uh, and before you remove your contingencies, uh, worked on a case uh, where a, an illegal conversion of a garage into a bedroom had happened in the 1930s. Wow. Uh, buyer found this out after the fact because the, the garage had been so nicely developed and so nicely built, you never would have known looking at the garage that it was an illegal conversion. And it had been converted. In fact, it wasn't even a garage when it was converted. It was a, a stable when it was converted. Wow. <laughs> We went back and looked at some old city records, which frankly weren't that difficult to find. But if, if you go down to the county and you do some old-fashioned elbow grease work and look through files, I think it's worth its weight in gold. Wow. A stable before cars were even popular. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it's, where the, it's where the horses and the carriages stayed at night. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> All right. So what are the opportunities for buyers or sellers with improper or failure to disclose? Well, I think the biggest opportunity is the opportunity to move on if the, case, if the property doesn't work for you. Better to be safe than sorry, like I said earlier. If you find these, uh, find these problems in your diligence period, then it's an opportunity for you to just cancel and move on. Or if uh, you think that it's something you can work with, uh, when I say you, I mean the buyer and the seller, if they can work it out uh, in either a reduction of price or some other accommodation to the deal, that's the time to do it when you're still in your diligence period, not once you've removed all your contingencies and now you're bound to the contract and you almost have to close. Okay, that, that's a very good point. It's tough after you close, and that's often when problems are discovered, is after escrow's closed, and it's weeks, months, years later, and then these problems arise. Yes, and I, I know some investors who won't even open escrow until they've done, they've done some of this diligence. So Interesting. So taking yet. Interesting. Well, and I'm just thinking out loud here about how property lines, true property lines could definitely come into play as if an investor or even a, someone that plans to live in a home is planning on expanding the footprint of the home. In my own home, right here in Dana Point, I know we had to get a survey as we were doing a lot of addition. We were pushing the, the house forward and backward. The sides were set with a setback, but we had to hire a surveyor to make sure and confirm all the lines because the city was saying, okay, setback, front and back, this is your restrictions. And thankfully, it wasn't significantly different. But if it were, that could really impact you as an investor if you were you know, planning a big addition and you learned something you know, that you couldn't even do it. Absolutely. Watch your setbacks. If you find a property and you have plans to expand the structure on it, watch your, watch your boundary lines very, very carefully. You bring up a very good point. Yeah, that could be painful. Well, let's move on to um, the next opportunity. Properties with title issues. Um, yeah. I know a lot of investors will just shy away from title issues because they don't know how to resolve them. So how is this an opportunity? And is that something that you and your office help resolve? 
Yes, we do. In fact, we see a lot of actions to quiet title, um, which involve liens on property that should have been removed, uh, liens on property that can be removed, uh, whether they're judgment liens or they're former mortgage liens, um, or their disputes over who should actually be on title to the property. Uh, mm. Sometimes family members, sometimes former partners. Uh, and um, you're right. Oftentimes you open escrow and 10 days into escrow, uh, title gives you a preliminary report which shows all kinds of surprises that you, you never expected. And the first knee-jerk reaction would be to walk away from the, from the situation. And maybe in some situations that would be the right thing. But my father always said where there's, an, where there's a difficulty, there may also be an opportunity. So uh, I'm endlessly impressed and uh, amazed at the resourcefulness and, and innovativeness of, of some of the folks in the real estate field. And uh, if there's an opportunity to be had there, uh, there are ways to clear title. Unfortunately, it involves having to go before a judge with a quiet title action, but it can be done. Uh, over the past eight or nine years, uh, the fallout from the last foreclosure crisis still lives on title to many of our properties. Uh, foreclosure rescue scams, which were placing fictitious names on title to property, which are still there. The trouble is these cloud, what we call a cloud on title, never go away. They sit there forever and they fester. And if they involve a debt, they also may even accrue, continue to accrue interest. They just don't go away. They have to be fixed. So if, if you are a seller and uh, you find that you have a cloud on title and you're simply not going to be able to convey title to your buyer, you have to fix that problem. It's not going to go away. Uh, you can do it by uh, filing an action to quiet title. Uh, it's not a very fast process. It does take a few months. But what are your alternatives? You have to get title cleared up if you want to sell your property. If you can't deliver title and title insurance doesn't want to insure it, you don't have a choice. But the good news is there is uh, a solution to it, and that's an action to quiet title. Can Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> An action to quiet title is going to involve fictitious people who were placed on title. Then the chances of the case going by default are going to be fairly high. You're going to get it resolved by default. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, do you have any personal stories or examples um, that you can share with um, situations like this where you've seen this and resolved it and help people resolve these issues? Uh, the one I described to you earlier where we had people who were victims of foreclosure rescue scams, okay. which ended up with two, three, five, ten, twenty names on title to their property and didn't even know until it was time to sell. Um, many of those people were, in fact, complete fictions. They never existed. But they were placed on title to exact some sort of maneuver, which usually didn't even happen. Uh, those can be fixed with quiet title actions. And then you have your property back. You have title to your property back. Now you can sell it or live with it and keep it. Right. So with um, someone hiring your firm to resolve something like that, when you bring up like 20 fictitious people, would if I, brought, if I came to you with um, a situation like this, am I paying 
per fictitious person or is it all kind of lumped together to get them off a title or how expensive is this to resolve? That's, that's a good question. I try to offer flat fees when I can. Um, when, when I can go off the billable hour, I believe it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, if it's a case where I feel we will uh, be able to handle it by default, then I will offer a flat fee. Uh, the time window is not great, but we are we work in a court system which was designed for another century. And as we continue to update it, uh, we're still catching up. But we live in a very, very fast time. Uh, typical window is about six to seven months. I know that uh, that sounds awfully long when you're in escrow and you have 30 days to close. But um, here's something to think about for your listeners. What if you could keep it in contract until property was cleared up? Uh, there may be an opportunity there. What if that frees up not only title, but maybe even some value in the property? If you can keep it under contract for long enough uh, and everyone's on board, maybe there's a deal to be had, right? Absolutely. I, I like that thinking. And what about, um, I know sometimes investors will come across some people, I'm going to call them the kids, the kids of the former owner where the kids are living in a house that mom or dad passed away or an aunt or an uncle and they just keep living in the house and maybe mom or dad or relative passed away five, 10, 20 years ago and they're just living in the house. Um, how do we you know, get through that challenge and is that something that you can help resolve? Yes, it is. In fact, um, we, see it, we see it fairly often. Uh, the, the holder of title passes away the family members still live at the property. Uh, no one ever opened probate. Maybe the, maybe the holder of title did not have a will or a trust. They died what we call intestate, mm -hmm. which means you have to go to probate. And sometimes the families are reluctant to do so because they don't have the money or they don't have the time. Um, and they just leave things uh, a status quo. Uh, but there comes a point where there are, if they have to refinance the house or they have to sell it, they're not going to be able to convey title. Uh, one of the alternative, one of the options, which may make, and probate court is slow. It just is. Uh, we have over 50 courtrooms downtown, and only a few of them are dedicated to our probate cases. So one of the options is something called probate code section 13100, which is a faster easier and less expensive probate action, which can, you can use to transfer title if the estate has up to $150,000 in value or less. Um, all of the heirs or beneficiaries uh, must join in with your request to the court by signing a petition. Uh, there must not be a current or past probate proceeding, so it has to be, it has to be your, first, your first round in probate court, but it can be done. And those, those are fairly inexpensive and they're fairly fast, we can get them done in some cases, in some cases, between 60 to 100 days. All right. So when the total estate value needs to be 150000 or less, homes in California are often priced much higher than that. Is that um, like a net value? Say that there was a home that was worth 500000 now, and maybe there's still a loan on it for a couple hundred thousand. Um, or maybe maybe it's a five hundred thousand dollar house with a four hundred thousand dollar one. So there's a net value of a hundred. Is this like a gross value or net value? The hundred and fifty. Uh, it could be either, depending on what else is owned in the estate. Uh, okay. That's that's the type of situation which we would really need to look at the numbers to to determine if that's equity or value. Okay, very interesting. 
All right. So many opportunities to talk about things here. What can you tell us about bankruptcy? How can bankruptcy be an opportunity for investors to take advantage of? uh, You can always buy a property in bankruptcy. Um, I think one of the areas that uh, both sellers and buyers need to be careful of when it comes to bankruptcy is to make sure is to know if you have authority to sell the property, mm. uh, especially for investors who are purchasing distressed properties where you are buying properties from homeowners who are unfortunately experiencing financial difficulty. Uh, it's entirely possible that that homeowner may be in bankruptcy. Uh, if that's the case, the homeowner, uh, we've even seen situations where homeowners didn't even know they were in bankruptcy. Um, they signed on with some sort of foreclosure, rescue, prevention, and Mm. didn't even know that a bankruptcy had been filed in their name. So whether they know or they don't know, if the homeowner's in bankruptcy, they may not have what we call standing uh, to convey title. Uh, In a simple bankruptcy, like a Chapter 7, for example, uh, without getting into too much detail, a fiction is created called the estate, bankruptcy estate, and a trustee is appointed to that estate, at which point the trustee controls all of the debtor's assets. Uh, That includes their home. Uh, A debtor may or may not realize this when they filed, especially if they filed without the advice of counsel, and they may try to go into escrow to sell the property. If they may be in a short sale, uh, and they may not realize that as long as they're in bankruptcy, they're probably going to have to get permission from the judge and uh, and uh, the consent of the trustee to sell the property. It's a little easier to get that permission and, and consent if the property has no equity or if it has very little equity enough that could be protected uh, by our bankruptcy laws in the homeowner's favor. But generally speaking, it's good for a homeowner to check that if they plan to sell their property. And it's, it's definitely a good idea for uh, prospective buyers of properties from homeowners who are in distress. Make sure the property is not in bankruptcy. And if it is, there may be an opportunity there to, to, to close a sale on a property that others may shy away from. There's, so, oh, I have a question about that. When you're saying the no. seller may not even know they're in bankruptcy, and I've heard... Just amazing stories of these foreclosure rescue companies and yes, yes. like hor- horrible, illegal, unethical things. And a lot of times I think the, the poor victims are the worst victims. These people that are in financial hardship are then victims losing money and time to these other companies that are supposedly helping them and they really hurt them a lot too. If they went into escrow to sell a property would escrow tell the buyer and the seller, hey, there's a bankruptcy here? Would escrow or title know and be able to tell them? Or Hopefully, Yes. Okay. Uh, escrow has no responsibility. It has very little responsibility to do any diligence. Right. Uh, but title may find out. And if title finds out, and title would be wise to check, and very often they do. Uh, so you may find out, but it's, it's fairly easy for, uh, for buyers to find out themselves. Our, our bankruptcy courts are, uh, are online. The dockets are online. There's a system called P-A-C-E-R, which is relatively inexpensive, which you can sign up for to check bankruptcy records uh, and run 
run searches by name or by property address. Interesting. And then, of course, if you're um, engaging the services of an attorney, an attorney could tell you that in probably just a few quick minutes, right? <laughs> yes, yes, we could. Uh, I, I'd also, I'd also, uh, I also see some opportunities for debtors in bankruptcy. Uh, we have uh, tools available to us for homeowners in bankruptcy that are not normally available. Uh, for example, the two most common chapters uh, that are available to homeowners are Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. These are the two most common bankruptcies that you fought. Don't worry yourselves too much about what Chapters 1 to 6 and 8 to 12 are most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time they, they, they simply won't be options for, for a homeowner uh, who has consumer debt. Uh, but in Chapter 13s and in Chapter 7s, if the numbers work out right, and that's, that's a whole other discussion, but if the numbers work out right, you may have the, uh, op, you may have the option to remove liens on the property, remove junior liens, remove judgment liens, um, uh, which, of course, does what? Free up equity in the property. Uh, without getting into a great detail of discussion, I just want your listeners to know that those kinds of options exist in bankruptcy. And uh, if the homeowner uh, is, is overly burdened with debt on, that has liens on the property, they may have choices. Awesome. Okay. For, well, your buyer, for your buyer clients, if they're willing to stick around with the deal for long enough to, to, to remove those, then there may be an opportunity there for both buyers. Yes. As our mutual friend, Jackie Mendoza, calls that kind of a deal, it's a slow dance. It's a long one that might take a while to get done, but it can Yes, yes. and it may pay off. But uh, you often find that w those are the opportunities which maybe your competition would shy away from. Yeah. Someone will probably benefit, so why not you if you're willing to stick it out? Yeah. Well, we don't have too much more time left, but I definitely wanted you to at least touch briefly about, um, I'm going to say, the, the pitfall that could await landlords when it comes to doing evictions. I myself have had to do evictions probably about five times, or I've had to go to court in the last um, five years or so. Okay. And don't like having to pay the attorney fees, but it's a necessary thing sometimes to get people out. Um, what is what are the different notice options, and when do you file what, and how do you know what to do? What would you advise someone to do? Uh, Landlord-tenant is probably the area of real estate law where I cut my teeth, and uh, it's a very, very technical area of the law. It's very unforgiving uh, for technical mistakes on either side. Uh, we have specific directives from our lawmakers in Sacramento on the way they've drafted the laws as they apply to landlord-tenant matters, particularly evictions, that there is to be strict construction of the law. That means the law has to be followed to the letter. Uh, had a situation where a landlord had served a three-day notice and, and neglected to put their contact information at the bottom. They just signed the three-day notice and they served it. And that case went down in flames and that was the only reason why. Your, your case lives and dies by the, you following the letter of the law. And that's a good example. That's why I don't recommend 
that uh, as, as painful as it may be to pay attorneys, the, this is an area of the law where I think it, I think it's absolutely necessary. It's vital that you get proper guidance. Well, and I have a couple of stories here that I'll share during this little discussion. But the first one was when my husband had shown up to court to do an eviction and he'd crossed his T's and dotted I's, did it all perfect and showed up with all the documents. And the judge said, well, if you own this property in an LLC, you cannot represent yourself. You must have an attorney. So started over back to square one with yeah. an attorney. So if you could speak to that, um, if you own it in your own name, can you still represent yourself in court? And then if it's owned in an entity, you must hire an attorney. Is that true? Yes, that's absolutely true. Entities must be represented by counsel in court. Um, the type of notice you serve is very, very important. It's a, it's a topic for another day, but we have three-day notices, 30-day notices, 60-day notices, 90-day notices, and each situation calls for a different, a different type of notice. You must get your notice right. If you don't get your notice right, your, your, your case is going out. It's, you get to start over. Like <laughs> and especially if you have to serve a lengthy notice, like a 60-day or a 90-day now you have to serve the notice, which has to, in content, be correct, and wait for that period of time before you can even file your unlawful detainer action. It can be painful. It can be a painful loss of time. Yes, and I've had um, several tenants that have gotten um, some kind of free legal aid. There's free legal aid out there for lower income people, and they will just try and do whatever they can to delay the process as well. And they've shown up in court. And when I've followed the right path instantly, you know, the judgment's always in my favor. Um, when I say the right path, you know, following the rules and everything. But I have one more story, one more painful story I want to share really quick. I had done the processing with um, an attorney service. Well, it was an attorney, an individual who I will not name because I would probably get in trouble for that. But he did a lot of evictions out in Riverside County. And we had processed the paperwork. Everything went through. The sheriff showed up to lock out my tenant. And the sheriff refused to do it because we didn't have the word street after the name of the street. So it was, you know, I'll make up an address. One, two, three, Main Street. I didn't have street on all the notices. So even though the judge approved it, went through the whole process, we had to start over at the very beginning. And that attorney, when I asked this attorney, have you ever seen this happen before? And he said, oh yeah, it's happened. And I asked him, why didn't you tell me? I mean, I would have done it, you know, this proper way from the beginning. He absolved himself of all responsibility and said, well, that's your fault. And you didn't complete the paperwork correctly. So I guess my advice is to find someone that's reputable and that knows what they're doing and is experienced. So very yes. painful. It, it gets more complicated if you're dealing with uh, another layer of regulation, like having a Section 8 tenant. Mm. Now you're wary of Section 8 uh, regulations or a rent control situation, a Los Angeles rent control situation. Uh, it's, it's, it's a complicated area. It's very technical, and it, uh, it follows the letter of the law strictly. If you have minor, minor mistakes, they can be fatal. Usually they are. Yeah. 
It, it's not a place to um, to mess around. And my advice, my personal advice to people is hire the attorney. It's actually lower cost in the long run than messing up and waiting longer and going through everything again. This may sound like a self-serving comment, but I agree. <laughs> yes. Take it from me. I, I've learned the hard way a couple of times. So, well, that is about all the time we have today. would love to have you on again in the future. And boy, all the opportunities you shared sound really exciting. And that leads me, of course, to say, how would people get in touch with you? And do you charge even just to talk to them on the phone? I don't charge to talk to them on the phone. I don't charge for my initial consultations. I want to make sure that I'm able to help you before you decide to pay me. Uh, it, if, uh, uh, if you do call, I'm happy to do consults over the phone uh, and see if briefly I can, I can evaluate the situation and give you, give you a little, at least a little bit of guidance or at least make sure it's something I can help you with. And if that's the case, then we'll talk about fees. But uh, up front, no, I don't charge for my initial consultation. Uh, I will caution everyone that everything we've discussed today is just general information. It really shouldn't be, you shouldn't take it as legal advice. Your case will never be the same as another's and deserve specific custom advice. Consult with an attorney, me or someone else. I don't charge for my initial consultations and I know some other, I know other attorneys who don't. Uh, make sure that you, uh, that you get proper legal advice customized to your situation. Everything we've discussed today is just helpful information. Right, right. I agree with that. So please give our listeners your contact information verbally here. And of course, I will have it all in the show notes in case they don't have a pen and paper to write down. Certainly. My, our phone number is 818-476-0107. Uh, feel free to email me if you wish. It's rbulgorgian at gmail.com, the initial of my first name. And then I decided uh, madly to include the full spelling of my last name, R. Bulgorjian, R-B-O-U-L-G-O-U-R-J-I-A-N at gmail.com. At least the last part is short. Perfect. And do you have a website for your I firm? I have a website. We're also on Yelp. Uh, you can find me on Yelp if you just Yelp my name or it's www.bulgorjianlaw.com. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for all of your time and wisdom and advice today. And um, from all my listeners, thank you and appreciate you just being one of the good guys out there helping us investors as we try to make the world a better place for our tenants and for the buyers of our homes that we flip. So thank you again, Rafi. It's my pleasure, Holly. Okay. Luck to everyone listening. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you found value in today's episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. You can find our show notes at our website, houseflipmasters.com, on the podcast page. Also, to get our top tips for finding deals without spending lots of money, go to houseflipmasters.com for your free download today. <laughs>